Welcome to this uh, podcast on asthma and wheeze. Uh, uh, in the next couple of slides, I'm going to be talking through uh, about the various uh, age groups of uh, wheeze and asthma. I'll also be talking about uh, how to manage difficult asthma uh, and when a referral is appropriate to tertiary hospitals. Okay, if you turn to the next slide, I have various abbreviations on the different doses of inhaled corticosteroids um, and I will be referring to them uh, many times during my uh, talk so it's very important that you understand what those different doses are. Uh, the reason uh, I have done this is because there is often confusion with regards to what the doses are and this is not helped by the fact that the BTS guidelines and NICE guidance have different um, uh, definitions of what uh, a specific dose of ICS is. For example, moderate dose ICS, uh, according to the uh, NICE guidance, is uh, Clenor 200 BD or Flixotide 100 micrograms BD. But uh, for uh, the BTS guidelines, uh, that dose is equivalent to a high dose of ICS. So for the purpose of this podcast, we will be using the uh, NICE guidance uh, definition of what uh, dosage of a low, moderate or high dose ICS is. In addition, I also have uh, uh, the pheno, which is a fairly new test. Uh, it stands for the fractional exhaled nitric oxide test. And this is something that has been introduced into uh, the uh, diagnosis and management of asthma um, during the most recent NICE guidance. Okay, uh, so if you turn to the next slide, we're going to start talking about preschool wheeze. Uh, preschool wheeze is by definition, uh, is wheeze that affects children under five years of age. Uh, and um, we can use the bottom ceiling of uh, one years old, although a lot of uh, uh, papers and uh, research is uh, done uh, in children over the age of two. So there is a, um, a gray area between the age of one to two, because uh, as you know, some children do still suffer from bronchiolitis at this time, and so won't fall into the preschool wheeze category. Um, in general, preschool wheezes can be divided into two. Uh, the most common form is the episodic viral wheeze, uh, which uh, we commonly know as recurrent viral wheezes, and this affects 95% of uh, children. Uh, on the other hand, there is a small proportion of them who have multi-trigger wheeze, uh, and that's about 5%. Um, the, this is a fairly new terminology, of which replaces the old terminology of preschool asthma or uh, incomplete asthma. Uh, the, these two uh, entities are very different and how you manage them is also very different. Uh, but of course, uh, when you uh, see a child who uh, in clinic because they are having recurrent episodes of wheeze or cough, uh, it's very important to think about the other differential diagnosis uh, such as reflux, rhinitis, reactive airway, uh, obstructive sleep apnea or more chronic conditions such as CF or primary ciliary dyskinesia. Um, but assuming you have done uh, a good history and, and you are going down the fact that this child is having recurrent wheeze, um, there is a very good uh, uh, predictive uh, calculator that you can use which uh, if you turn to the next slide the Americans have introduced uh, to help you uh, to stratify which of these two entities of episodic viral wheeze versus multi-trigger wheeze the child falls into. Uh, if your child has had four distinct episodes of wheeze within the year, 
and has either one major or two minor criteria, then their um, chances of having multi-trigger wheeze is a lot higher, and as such, their risk of going on to develop asthma when they are over the age of five is also a lot higher. Uh, next page, uh, you can see uh, that there is this uh, API calculator, which you can use online. You can fill it all up, um, and then they at the end of it, they will give you the percentage uh, chance of this child going on to de develop asthma. So if you have one major or two minor criteria with uh, recurrent episodes of wheezing, then your child is more 95% chance of going on to develop asthma. However, if you're negative to all of them, uh, then the chances of your child going on to develop asthma is uh, about 1%. Okay, so next slide, we're going to talk about multi-trigger wheeze. So this is a new terminology, as I mentioned, for uh, what is previously known as incomplete asthma or preschool asthma. And this uh, child is very likely to go on and develop childhood asthma uh, when they are over the age of five. And uh, as a result, it's very important that these children are treated early on with inhaled corticosteroids and treated aggressively. Uh, there is uh, some studies which look at uh, the degree of reversibility of uh, their FEV1. And if you miss the boat uh, of uh, not treating them after a year, then they are going to go on and develop a more permanent obstruction, which is why um, there is a lot of uh, uh, importance placed on uh, picking up these 5% of children with multi-trigger wheeze. Uh, next slide, so we talk about trial or treatment. So there is a myth that you cannot diagnose asthma uh, until they are um, uh, over the age of five. Uh, obviously, this myth was propagated because uh, in the past, asthma uh, diagnosis was done through uh, peak flu uh, reading, which has con uh, kind of gone out of fashion, and we'll talk about that later. Um, the You can diagnose asthma in the uh, preschool uh, wheezes age group. Um, the NICE guidance has very clear uh, guidance of how you can do that and it's done by trial of treatment. Uh, it is very important that parents are made uh, uh, aware that uh, you are doing a trial of treatment and that uh, to make a diagnosis that you will need to withdraw treatment at some point later on. So uh, the way to do it is to start the child on an eight-week uh, dose of moderate uh, inhaled corticosteroids um, and it's very important that the parents understand that they need to do it on a daily basis uh, and um, they may not see an improvement in the symptoms uh, for up to four to six weeks as it does take that long for the corticosteroids to work. Uh, if the child's symptoms do re uh, improve, uh, then uh, the parents need to be advised to uh, stop the inhaled corticosteroids and one of two things is either going to happen. The child is still going to be uh, become symptomatic again, in which case you restart them on the inhaled corticosteroids and diagnose them with asthma or if the inhaled corticosteroids uh, uh, are withdrawn and they are asymptomatic, then they are unlikely to have asthma. Obviously, if you have a child who's on a good dose of inhaled corticosteroids, uh, but the symptoms do not go away, then this is unlikely to be asthma, uh, and you need to think about other types of uh, uh, conditions that may be uh, causing this, your child's symptoms. Um, okay, so uh, next, page, we're going to talk about episodic viral wheeze. So uh, episodic viral wheeze is our commonly known as um, recurrent viral induced wheeze. So these children only wheeze during viral uh, illnesses and they do not have any other risk factors such as atopy, eczema, 
uh, food allergies, etc., etc. Um, the there are two ways to uh, manage this. Uh, one is the common uh, thing that if you have a child who has got recurrent wheeze, uh, that we give them a, a low dose of inhaled corticosteroids on a daily basis uh, and then to withdraw this uh, at some point when they're older. Uh, the more uh, uh, new uh, uh, evidence points towards using recurrent uh, um, intermittent high-dose inhaled corticosteroids are as an alternative to using a low-dose inhaled corticosteroids. So if your child has got recurrent episodes of wheeze, uh, so more than three times a year, and they're recurring oral steroids, um, so those children that are bouncing into PAU who uh, take a long time to stretch, then you can uh, give use put a plan in for inhaled intermittent in uh, high dose inhaled corticosteroids. Uh, for example, flexicide 50, uh, four puffs BD, and you tell the parents you use this uh, at the start of illness, uh, so when they have the first signs of cold, and you do it for between seven to 10 days. Uh, if you look at the data, uh, it basically helps decrease the uh, amount of stero oral steroids that these children need by 20%. So if you have a child who keeps coming in requiring oral steroids, this is probably the route to go. Obviously, the key thing is to make sure that uh, these children actually are properly risk stratified and they actually have episodic viral wheeze rather than multi-trigger wheeze. Um, if they, if you look at the Kaiser study, uh, which was done in America in twenty six seventeen, which is a large uh, 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 study, uh, that basically shows that the uh, side effect profile is better if you use uh, intermittent high dose inhaled corticosteroids as opposed to giving them uh, a daily dose of low dose steroids. And this is what I would use in my clinic. Okay, so. Uh, if you go to the next slide, I've just summarized it up. So you've got a child with preschool wheeze. Uh, if they have uh, risk factors, so allergy symptoms, uh, eczema, uh, or wheezing apart from cold, then the, the chances are that this child is going to have a higher probability for asthma and you should do the trial of treatment. However, if you have a child who does not have any of these risk factors, then the probability of going on to develop asthma is very low, that's about 1%. And so you should be focusing on treating the symptoms and consider the use of intermittent high-dose intercorticosteroids if they keep bouncing back in. Okay. In this next episode, I'm going to be talking about diagnosing children uh, over the age of five uh, with asthma. Uh, so the uh, NICE have basically come up with very new guidance as to how we should be diagnosing children with asthma. In the past, this would be done based on symptoms as well as uh, using some peak flow diary. But as you very well know, patients are not very good at keeping peak flow diaries. And um, as a result of that, um, uh, we are trying to move away from that towards more qualitative testing. So if you have a child who's over five, uh, we should uh, aim to do uh, spirometry. Um, Obviously, if they can't perform spirometry, then we would uh, do a trial of treatment as you would do for the under fives. But if they're able to do spirometry, what you're looking for is evidence of uh, obstruction. So that would be a low FEV1 relative to their FVC. Uh, and a uh, if they do demonstrate um, obstruction, then we would need to perform bronchodilative reversibility. So that's giving them uh, some salbutamol, uh, usually six puffs, waiting for 15 minutes and repeating the spirometry. Uh, if you have a improvement of FEV1 by more than 12%, then this is uh, by definition asthma. 
uh, and you just need uh, and you can treat them as per the uh, guidelines. Um, now, uh, unfortunately, for a lot of uh, children, especially younger children, uh, they may may not have um, uh, evidence of obstruction uh, on their uh, spirometry, uh, and this is oftentimes the case for children with early asthma. But you still want to pick them up. So the next step would actually be to uh, measure the pheno uh, as well as do a peak flow diary. Uh, if you have a high pheno over 35 and 20% peak flow variability, uh, then uh, you have a diagnosis of asthma. However, if you have only one which is raised, or either the pheno which is raised or the peak flow which is raised, uh, then uh, there would be a, a suspicion of asthma and you should do a trial of treatment. If you have a negative spirometry with negative pheno and no peak flow variability, then this is not asthma and you need to reconsider your diagnosis. Um, now, just going back to the spirometry, the best time to actually do spirometry is um, when the child is being admitted for an acute exacerbation, uh, as uh, this is often the times uh, when they uh, will have good going obstruction and so if you are able to do that when the child is being admitted, uh, that's great. But otherwise, uh, they will need to be done in clinic. Uh, now, in terms of spirometry, so if you go on to the uh, next slide, um, what we, uh, as we mentioned, we do a baseline spirometry. We then look for evidence of obstruction, administer six pass or salbutamol, wait for 15 minutes, and then to repeat the spirometry to show reversibility. Now, I know some people try to be helpful by starting these children on preventers on discharge, and this sometimes can muddy the waters a bit. Um, and so if that's the case, uh, we then need to start uh, repeating the spirometry a few times in clinic until uh, we are sure whether this child has or does not have asthma. So if you go on to the next slide, if you do have a child who has got um uh, is already on bronchodilators, then I would give them the advice to stop their bronchodilators 24 hours before uh, coming to clinic to see me and then uh, we're doing the spirometry. Now this can still be inconclusive and the GINA, so that's the uh, WHO's uh, website for uh, asthma, gives very clear guidance of how uh, in clinic uh, we wean the um, inhaled corticosteroids over a period of time and performing spirometry during each attendance uh, to clinic to see whether there is any evidence of obstruction. Uh, there is currently a lot of discussion going on about how you can undiagnose asthma because as you know, a lot of these children who have a diagnosis of asthma as, as a teenager, oftentimes uh, uh, when you ask them in clinic, they say, oh, I've had my asthma since I was a a child and so um, this is obviously very uh, difficult uh, to uh, un, you know unravel or um, unpick because uh, they may actually not have asthma and what they actually had as a child was just recurrent uh, or episodic viral wheeze. Um, if you next slide uh, we just talked about the acceptability criteria so this is what we are looking for when we uh, do as parameters so um, to make sure that the spirometry is adequate, we need to make sure that the child is able to blow hard initially, so that is their, uh, to show the FEV1, and then they need to be continuously blowing. Uh, and this is 6 seconds if the child is over 10, or 3 seconds if the child is under 10. Uh, there should be no coughing, although the machines that we have are very good in actually pointing them out, and so we can just omit that from our um, uh, 
uh, test uh, data. So if you turn to the next slide, I have these parameters. So on the left side, you can see uh, what looks like a normal flow curve. And with the uh, patient with the restrictive picture, you can see that the flow curve is very similar, except that it is much smaller. Whereas with the obstructive picture, you can see that there's a very sharp uh, uh, drop uh, there, uh, for, which basically shows the decrease in the FEV1. Uh, now, there is uh, various differentials for obstruction. Um, in children, the two that you will be thinking about is either is this child have asthma or does this child have BO or bronchiolitis obliterans. And that is why it's very important that these children actually do uh, have their uh, reversibility checked because if they do not de demonstrate reversibility, then obviously you need to reconsider your diagnosis as to whether this child does have asthma or whether this is actually uh, obliterans. Um, so next uh, slide, uh, we talk about uh, how we uh, look for obstruction. So obstruction is in children defined as FEV1 ratio uh, of 70% uh, or less. However, in the younger children, so we're talking about the children who are 5 uh, to uh, 10 years old, they may oftentimes demonstrate some degree of obstruction but not below the uh, 70% uh, threshold. And this is because, um, as you know, with asthma, this is a chronic uh, inflammatory condition that happens over time. So you may have picked them up early. And so if uh, the child has got an uh, FEV ratio of 75% with reversibility, I would still diagnose them with asthma. Uh, so we talked about reversibility, giving them salbutamol, and there's a formula here, uh, which is very easy to calculate uh, the um, reversibility, and you're obviously looking for a FEV1 increase of over 12%. If you can't uh, do the math, there's also online calculators out there, which uh, will help you in doing the math for you. Okay, uh, if we go on to the next slide, we're talking about pheno. So pheno is a fairly new test uh, that has been introduced for asthma. The test itself has been around for quite some time and it's been used previously in COPD patients. So to understand pheno, so uh, pheno me measures nitric oxide, nitric oxide, sorry, which is produced in response to an inflammatory process uh, in eosinophilic uh, asthma. So if you have a child who has got good going airway inflammation because of asthma, then by definition, the pheno is going to be high. Uh, so and the high pheno tells you that this child is uh, basically uh, going to respond to steroids uh, and help support the diagnosis of asthma. So in children, a pheno is uh, over 35 parts per billion um, and that is considered positive. However, it's important to understand that uh, one in five children uh, will test negative for pheno, uh, with the pheno. They could have either neutrophilic asthma or um, they could be on uh, medications which may be suppressing their um, uh, pheno, such as if they're on uh, oral steroids. Um, the next slide, you've got a nice picture. Uh, I'm sure like some of you have already seen the drug reps come with a pheno machine. So the child uh, needs to blow uh, in and out of uh, the machine to, and it will measure the amount of airway inflammation for the child. Um, the phenos is a very good test if you have a child who has got a poorly controlled asthma uh, because uh, if they have a high pheno, uh, then they basically tells you that there's still lots of inflammation going on in their lungs and one of two things needs to happen. So they either need to have more inhaled corticosteroids 
or they are not taking the medication and they need to work on their compliance. And uh, if you have a child with a high phenol, I oftentimes will confront them and ask them if uh, they actually have been taking the medication. And I may write to the GPs and ask for their prescriptions for the last year to see how frequently they're picking up the prescriptions. Okay, uh, next slide is on peak flow variability. So you are basically asking the patients to keep a peak flow, a diary for, the two, uh, for around two to four weeks, and then subsequently, uh, you will review that and look at what their highest peak flows are and what their lowest peak flows are. And based on the variability, you uh, will decide whether they are uh, have as, uh, asthma or not. Um, obviously, uh, the, uh, if you have a variability over 20%, then it's more likely to support the diagnosis of asthma. But th obviously, this is also uh, important to remember that uh, it, the patient needs to have good technique. Um, and they're not actually uh, making up the results. Okay. Okay, so now we're going to talk about what happens when children come to asthma review clinic. Uh, so there's various things that we need to checklist on uh, when they come to asthma clinic, uh, which is recommended by the BTS guidelines, and this is what is considered gold standard. So all children will come in will have an ACT score done. So that's the asthma control test. And we'll talk about that a bit more later in the next slide. Uh, they have the inhaler techniques and spaces checked, uh, compliance checked, uh, and we look at the allergies to see if they have had any allergy testing done. Um, basically, BTS uh, basically say that all children with uh, diagnosis of asthma should have a baseline IgE RAS for error allergen panel done. Um, and so if that's not done, uh, we will arrange that in clinic. Uh, some other hospitals will have skin prick testing done in clinic at the same time as well, such as in Southampton and Wexham, although we do not have the facilities here at uh, Frimley Park. Um, we also review other things, comorbidities such as smoking and pets and their asthma action plan, making sure they it is up to date, but more importantly that they actually understand what is written by the asthma, in the asthma action plan. There's no point giving them a piece of paper uh, and not explaining to them what they need to do, uh, because it really defeats the purpose of an asthma action plan. The patient needs to understand what is being written there and how they uh, are going to escalate their treatment if they have an exacerbation. Okay, uh, so if you go to the next slide, we have got the asthma control test here. So it's a questionnaire. It's done in any child who's over four. Uh, and basically, uh, it gives you a snapshot of how the asthma control has been over the last month. Um, if they have a score of 19 or lower, that basically tells you that their asthma care needs optimization and you need to explore a bit further as to why their symptoms are poorly. Anything above that, uh, their asthma control is good, so you may uh, decide to remain on status quo. Um, in the next slide, we're going to talk about spaces. So you, I've got a couple of uh, pictures of spaces here and I'm sure you've seen different types of spaces. The most Three com most common ones you will see is uh, the arrow chamber, which is the one we commonly use now in um, our PAU. There's also the volumatics, which we were previously using a lot until the recent evidence has come out. Uh, and some of the patients which uh, come from Southampton, they use this uh, tin metal can, the vortex spacer, although it's very uh, weird that only some patients have the vortex spaces and the others use the arrow chamber spaces and I think it is down to consultants preference in Southampton. Um, now what we need to do is ensure that we are reducing statics as much as possible and that's where uh, not using a face mask uh, if possible is going to help so all children over the age of five should be using the spacer with the mouthpiece and not the face mask. 
Um, obviously, the aero chamber itself has, is made of anti-static polymer, so this is obviously much better in terms of uh, reducing amounts of static and in, and also getting the uh, better amount of drug into the patient's lungs. Um, there was a recent study done, um, but albeit with a small patient cohort where they looked at uh, teenagers using um, uh, these various spaces, so the aero chamber, the volumetric, uh, and basically compared the amount of serotype uh, that they were taking and how much actually got into the lungs. And what they found was that children who were using the aero chamber uh, spacer was actually getting twice as much uh, serotype into their uh, lungs uh, when they scanned them. Um, the, there are also other studies uh, which show that they, using the aero chambers uh, um, spacer is associated with lower exacerbation rates, which is why we have uh, decided to use the aero chamber spacers more in preference for the other spacers. Um, it, the smaller uh, spacer also means that the younger children won't need to take as many effective breaths to get the medication into the lungs as opposed to the big volumetric spacer. Uh, in terms, if you go to the next slide, we're going to talk about the spaces versus nebulizers in acute asthma. We know that uh, the Cochrane review, which is done, uh, has basically showed inequivocally that it is much better to use spaces compared to nebulizers, which is why we are trying to push for children to use spaces as much as possible. In fact, in Southampton, uh, their guidelines basically say that all children, irrespective of whether they come in with moderate or severe asthma, will get uh, salbutamol through spaces 10 puffs, and they can have oxygen in between. Some countries, such as Australia, uh, the they, what they do is they just don't use nebulizers. Instead, the children just get uh, the uh, salbutamol through spaces, and uh, they just give them uh, oxygen through the spacer at the same time as well. Uh, the only benefit of uh, nebulizers is actually to be able to give them oxygen uh, and if you look at the particleization uh, of uh, the uh, salbutamol, the salbutamol particles are a lot larger when you nebulize them as opposed to uh, when you uh, use a, a, a spacer and so it's, it's le less likely to get into the uh, smaller airways as well. Okay, uh, if you go to the next slide, I'm going to talk about uh, the various comorbidities that affects children with asthma. So what we term as asthma plus. So this can be the common other problems such as rhinitis, allergies, but also some other problems like dysfunctional breathing, obstructive sleep apnea, um, psychological issues, um, social issues, as well as whether the child actually has secondary gain in putting on their symptoms as well. Uh, okay, so next slide. So rhinitis, so this is the most common comorbidity of asthma affecting about 80% of the patients and it's very important that uh, this is uh, tackled as it contributes to asthma severity. So making sure that your patients with rhinitis symptoms have antihistamines, my preference is for fexofenadine, uh, as well as if they have um, uh, runny noses, uh, watery eyes, that they should have uh, some steroid nasal sprays as well, such as Avamis, uh, which uh, depending on their allergy testing would be either seasonal uh, or they may need it on a daily basis. Uh, and this, uh, you, that's why it's important that you do these allergy testing as well. Uh, and uh, we have various leaflets on lifestyle advice depending on uh, what type of um, 
uh, rhinitis they have. So if they have, for example, uh, grass pollen allergy, then it's very important to tell them to avoid uh, certain times of the day that where the grass pollen is high, uh, such as uh, first thing in the morning or in the afternoon where it's very hot and also avoid to go uh, going out after a thunderstorm because the thunderstorm actually displaces a lot of the pollen up into the environment and that's why you oftentimes see a lot of these asthma patients come into hospital with an exacerbation uh, big, uh, after uh, a thunderstorm because they then go out and play in the fields uh, for the next day uh, next paragraph Next uh, slide, so we're talking about dysfunctional breathing. So um, this is oftentimes very difficult because these patients uh, oftentimes uh, are present with a sensation of breathing difficulty and then they hyperventilate. In fact, uh, we had uh, one uh, recently on the weekend who came, has come in uh, quite a few times over the last couple of days with um, uh, presu uh, presumed asthma attack and was complaining of uh, swollen lips but actually you know when the child came into hospital and someone did the gas this child had a pH of 7.6 with a pCO2 of 1 and basically when you explore the symptoms further this child was actually having dysfunctional breathing and not having a uh, asthma attack uh, sometimes using questionnaires so there's a niche margin uh, questionnaire uh, can be used as a screening tool and obviously the, the key thing is uh, making sure that the patient has um, some respiratory physio to help them uh, recognize these symptoms and then to help coordinate their breathing a bit better. Uh, the other one problem, if you go to the next slide, which uh, we commonly see in children with asthma is uh, uh, vocal cord dysfunction. Um, this is uh, defined as involuntary episodic closure of the vocal folds during inspiration. It affects about 30% of patients especially with difficult asthma and these patients oftentimes complain of either chest tightness or they have a sensation of throat pain or choking or suffocation um, the common triggers are exercise air irritants uh, but oftentimes it is psychological and it's more common in young teenage girls than they are in uh, boys there is a questionnaire you can use to screen for it the newcastle uh, questionnaire and if they score low on this questionnaire then they are more likely to have vocal cord dysfunction and obviously the diagnosis is done by laryngoscopy uh, if you go to the next slide I have a summary of uh, to help you think about whether this patient actually has asthma or whether it is uh, there are other comorbidities such as dysfunctional breathing or vocal cord dysfunction which is actually the problem and it's sometimes a, a it can be difficult because I've, I've got patients who have got both asthma and they may have difficult asthma as well as well as vocal cord dysfunction and teaching the patients to actually recognize when it is the asthma that's playing up and when it is their dysfunctional breathing or vocal cord dysfunction which is play, playing up uh, can uh, help uh, you know prevent overtreatment and uh, admission to hospital when they don't need to right in the final um, couple of uh, episode of my podcast I'm going to talk about the remaining uh, comorbidities so start about pets so it's important that although you uh, check the patients for uh, error allergen and you may include pets in them uh, that the parents understand that if they do have a severe allergy that uh, they may uh, that rehoming may not always be possible uh, and if they do rehome the ch uh, the pet if they do decide to rehome the pet that the dander may remain in the house for up to a year afterwards anyways uh, so they may still be symptomatic so oftentimes there oftentimes needs to be a compromise uh, for example telling the pet uh, the 
parents to limit the areas where the pets can go, for example, certain rooms, and so the child avoids going to those rooms uh, using air filters and vacuuming, uh, and also to uh, give them some treatment as per rhinitis. Now, if instead this is a child going to someone else's house, um, then actually the uh, there is a very good advice on the asthma website as, as to what they should do. Uh, for example, giving the child some antihistamine two hours before visiting uh, their friend's house or uh, perhaps telling them not to vacuum because the, when they do vacuum the, uh, uh, and the pet has been uh, around the whole house, then what it does is just it displaces a lot of the pet dander up into the environment when they come. Uh, so this is very different to when you have a pet at home as to when your a friend has a pet of, uh, in their house and you're visiting them. Uh, okay, uh, so now we're going to talk a bit about difficult asthma. So difficult asthma, uh, by definition, is someone who has symptomatic asthma despite being on a moderate dose of ICS uh, with a LABA, so serotide, uh, and or a leukotriene receptor antagonist, so Montelukast. Um, or they have had uh, frequent causes of oral corticosteroids. Also think about it, if the child has had lots of oral steroids, do they actually need to have a short synaxin test uh, arranged? Because they could be uh, uh, steroid suppressed. Uh, when you do have a child with difficult asthma, don't just go and increase uh, the steroids. There's a few things that you need to do. And yes, sometimes they may need their steroids increasing, but oftentimes there's lots of other confounding factors that uh, can be addressed beforehand. So personalized asthma action plans. So make sure they have one, they understand it, and they know when to seek help when they uh, are getting uh, when their asthma is getting bad um, and if you go to the next slide you're talking about improving adherence so uh, making sure that they are actually getting their uh, treatment so I may write to GP ask them to give me a list of how often they're taking their prescriptions from them you may ask them to do a phenosuppression test so um, so if they have a high pheno you could ask them to take some inhaled corticosteroids uh, in uh, your site and then do a, a repeat pheno um, to see if it actually makes any difference to your pheno and if it does do then it basically what's happening is they're not taking their inhaled corticosteroids when they're at home. Um, sometimes we may need to uh, um, do uh, get a nurse to do a home visit to make sure that they're actually using the medicine supply. I remember once when Katie uh, was asked to do a home visit for one of my difficult asthma patients uh, and she asked, so have you been using your uh, steroid inhaler? Mum says yes. So the next question Katie asked was, uh, well, show me where you keep your uh, uh, steroid inhaler and mum couldn't find it. So that basically just tells me that the parents have not been giving the child a steroid inhalers as well. Uh, other methods, so there's e-inhalers, although we're not using this strategy at Frimley, as well as DOTS, so getting the school to supervise them taking the treatment, although at the moment it may be very difficult because all children are not in school. Uh, for the older children, there is uh, the alternative to having an inhaler and reliever, such as using SMART. Uh, so SMART stands for... Uh, so MART stands for maintenance and reliever therapy, and oftentimes the drug we use is uh, Symbicort, so hence the, the acronym SMART, although you can use it with Foster as well. It's licensed in children over 12, although you can use it in children from 5 to 12, but the problem is with Symbicort, it is a terrible inhaler, and uh, technique is, is very 
may be very difficult for the younger children. Um, so you put them on a regular maintenance uh, dose of Simbicort, usually two pulses twice a day. Uh, but the patients are told that they can increase this uh, to a maximum of 12 puffs if their asthma symptoms are poorly controlled. Uh, and uh, I have on the next slide the uh, SMART uh, action plan. Uh, so it basically tells the patients what to do so, and when to seek help and when to go see the GP or come to hospital if their asthma symptoms are not well controlled. Uh, uh, and the next slide we have a uh, cyclosinide. Uh, so these are uh, it's a fairly new drug which is on the market. It's marketed as Alvesco. Uh, the the reason uh, we generally use like cyclosinide as an add-on. Uh, so if say a child is already on serotype, say fifty uh, two puffs twice a day, but their asthma symptoms are poorly controlled, they are compliant with the medication. Uh, but the phenone is high, then the next thing we will do is put them on more steroid uh, because that's what uh, they need. Uh, so rather than giving them more uh, flexotide, which is what uh, the steroid component of a serotide is, we, I would oftentimes prescribe them with cyclosinide instead. So cyclosinide is very small particles, so it gets into the lungs better, it's absorbed better in the lungs, uh, but also the main benefit of it is it has the lower side effect profile of all the inhaled corticosteroids. Uh, the only problem is uh, cyclosinide is not licensed for children under the age of 12, uh, but uh, I will prescribe them uh, to the younger children uh, and explain to the parents that this is used off-license as well. Um, if the child is on serotide and cyclosinide, but I'm still having uh, problems managing the asthma symptoms, that is when I would then refer them on to uh, the difficult asthma clinic at Southampton. Uh, so in the final slide, you can see uh, that uh, at Southampton, uh, they oftentimes will go through everything else that I've done. But essentially what I'm asking for is whether they are uh, uh, the type of patient that is suitable for uh, other types of treatments such as biologics or whether they need to be on daily steroids. Um, so in terms of biologics, it will depend on their endotyping. Uh, at the moment, we have one patient so, uh, who is on mepiluzumab, so that's a one-monthly injection. Uh, so these injections obviously cost a lot of money, so they need to go through special funding panels, uh, and they also will have their um, uh, uh, symptoms and uh, progress reviewed. So, uh, for example, our patient who is on mepiluzumab, they, uh, uh, he's going to have this for a year and then they're going to review his progress after a year to see if it's made any difference to him. If it has, uh, then it will be continued, but obviously if it hasn't, then it will, need, it will be stopped and funding withdrawn. Uh, unfortunately, it only works in 10% of patients uh, and it's the same with omalizumab as well, which is the other uh, very common uh, injections that we use uh, for uh, severe resistant asthma. Uh, other strategies that we uh, can use is obviously putting them on theophylline uh, or on um, daily steroids as well. But obviously these children will be under care of uh, tertiary um, um, asthma. So I hope uh, all these uh, slides you have learned something uh, or at least uh, have updated your knowledge a bit about the management of wheeze uh, in the younger children as well as asthma and how to uh, tackle difficult asthma as well. If you have any questions, I'm more than happy to answer them and you can email them to me.